Hi, and welcome to the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. I'm your host, editor Madhuri Christian, joined again by my friend and colleague, Edward Ned Russell, as we discuss the Spirit Frontier merger, possibly, Maury Gallagher stepping down from Allegiant, and the rise of Indigo in India. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey there, Ned. How are you? I'm good, Maju. How are you doing this week? I'm doing good. We had a little bit of news this week. A little, 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 little bit of news this week. Just a little bit. Um, I'd like to tell our, our, our readers that she picked the perfect time to be on vacation on, on a Monday, Tuesday, uh, as a small little tiny merger between Frontier Airlines and Spirit Airlines broke. Yeah, yes, and I will let you let you talk about that. But I saw that alert actually woke me up on my phone at uh, around five o'clock Pacific time. I saw it. Went back to sleep, later kicked up my feet and was like, not my problem. So anyway, Ned, thanks for covering it while I was out. So Frontier and Spirit, let's let's talk about that. This is this is interesting because it's two one indigo owned and one formerly indigo owned ULCC. Yep. So it's uh, it's interesting, but then again, I don't think anyone was surprised. I wasn't surprised because the industry has sort of talked about the potential of a Frontier and Spirit merger for years. Like you said, Spirit formerly Indigo-owned, Frontier currently Indigo-owned. They both have, you know, sort of that same DNA from Bill Frankie at Indigo, that low-cost, low, you know, low-fare model. So it... Uh, and and, no and, and yeah. all A320s. All A320s, very comp, uh, complementary fleets. So, you know, no one... I don't think anyone was surprised that the deal is happening. The surprise was that it's happening now. Uh, one of the big questions that popped up on, well, before I go into big questions, so yeah, they're emerging. Frontier is the uh, buying party. They're going to have 51.5% in the new airline. It was approved by both airlines' boards. So, you know, it would create carriers serving 145 destinations. They'd have almost 300 aircraft combined, order book for more than 350 aircraft. It would, and uh, together they'd have about a seven eight percent share of the U.S. domestic market, which is small, but also it's it's no laughing matter because it would put them in front of JetBlue in Alaska, make them the fifth largest carrier. And I say them because we don't know what the resulting carrier would be named. That has not been decided. Yeah, I'm curious about that. Will they stick with the Spirit branding or the Frontier branding? Will we have yellow planes or will we have animals on on tails? My favorite were the memes that had a yellow plane with an animal on the tail, <laughs> you know, kind of a, a, a smash up of, of the two liveries. But, you know, it's it's anyone's guess what they're going to go. You know, that's going to be decided by by Bill Frankie and a committee. So, you know, if anything, you got to say Frontier's the largest airline. You have to wonder if that management team will went out. But that's the decision for down the road right now. Oh, I was going to say, so I wanted to ask you about this though, Ned, and, and we can talk about this at length, I'm sure, but the there's a figure you just mentioned there. The the combined carrier would have between 7 and 8% of the U.S. market um, and be fifth largest after, of course, American, United, Delta, and Southwest and not, not any order there, but just the four largest carriers. Um, and... Uh, but we have a an administration in the White House and in control of the Justice Department that is has shown itself not to be too open to further consolidation in any industry, not just the airline industry, and most recently signaled that uh, that um, 
opposition with the lawsuit against America and JetBlue over not a merger, but an, an alliance. So what are you hearing about the regulatory climate um, for this merger? So it's funny you bring that up, Madhu. That is the big question surrounding this combination. Is um, it funny or was it completely obvious that I brought it? Because <laughs> we, we, talk, we talked about just... this before. So <laughs> before we started completely recording, so it's not funny, funny at, at all. <laughs> so when the news broke, that was the top question, whether this would get regulatory approval. And some of the initial analyst comments on this that, that I, I when I chat with people was, you know, this is going to have a hard time getting through justice. Like you said, the administration is, you know, against any consolidation in already highly consolidated industries, which the airline industry is in the U.S. And, you know, they've signaled that they are going to, I mean, not only with the American JetBlue court case, but the, the head of the DOJ's antitrust division said that they will sue to stop any merger they see as anti-competitive. And he said that in January, uh, you know, Bloomberg reported. So that was the big question. Now, the news settled in. I've spoken to a number of antitrust lawyers. I've spoken to more analysts. And it's increasing. The, the consensus is increasingly that DOJ is likely to send this through, give this the green light. And, and the, the argument I keep hearing is, is, you know, first of all, Frontier and Spirit are not going to do, are going to dominate very few airports. Uh, I think Orlando's one where they're going to have the largest uh, share. There's a couple others, but these are all airports that are not slot constrained, that are not gate constrained. So there's really nothing they could divest per se at these airports. And you know they're not big at LaGuardia or DCA or JFK where slots are an issue. So there's not much they could be required to divest uh, to to create competition for the airlines. The other thing is is that, you know, the DOJ, and I remember when they did American U.S. Airways, they dove in on a route-by-route -route basis and analyzed the merger and how it could affect competition. If you look at the routes that Frontier and Spirit fly, yes, there are some where they're the only airlines, but, you know, their model is not to drive up fares. So if they merged, fares are unlikely to go up on those routes. And it's going to be, it would be a hard case to make by the DOJ that this is going to result in higher fares for, for consumers. So you, most people think, you know, DOJ is going to give it a you know, thorough vetting, but it's probably going to pass it through with, you know, I, I haven't even heard any examples of potential, uh, you know, um, settlement agreements because it's hard to find anything with this combo. Well, and once again, let's return to that seven to eight percent of the market. I mean, we're not talking about, um, you know, Delta and American merging or Southwest and United, which would, you know, be an enormous part of the market we're yeah. talking about. And for the record... I want to say I did hear from several people that if American, Delta, United, or Southwest tried to bring any deal to Washington today, it would be dead on arrival. Right. That would not. That would immediately get shot down. Well we, well, we saw that even um, back in 2015 when American was said to be interested in um, Virgin America. And that deal, even before it was announced, was kind of shot down by regulators. So that that was a different administration, true, but it was also one. I mean, that was the tail end, sort of the late late Obama administration, and um, uh, you know, I, it was that that proved a march too far for for the Obama Justice Department. So um, you know, seven to eight percent. It's a uh, it's kind of at the bottom here, where we're looking at consolidation, an argument can be made. I'm sure you heard this from your sources, and I've heard it from people as well. An argument can be made that you know the airline industry was really brought to its knees by by the pandemic. 
and this will kind of aid in the recovery. But then so, <laughs> I know what you're going to say. <laughs> oh, oh, gee, I, I'd love to hear what am I going to say with you? Well, Spirit and Frontier have re- recovered faster than all the other airlines. So does that they complicate have. things? So in terms of a justice review, no. But where I where the but is, is also when I spoke to, there was a lot of skepticism about Spirit and Frontier really creating new synergies, new opportunities that they couldn't do on their own. And that's because, you know, they're, they're already, they've already growing beyond 2019 capacity levels. You know, they are, you come back first, but someone made the point to me that if, if Spirit or Frontier can fly Syracuse, Orlando today, you know, once still, this is just out of a, a route, random route and fill a plane, they'll fly it. And because their models really don't rely on, you know, large amounts of connecting travelers, uh, there are some, but it's a very small percentage, you know, the resulting airlines are going to be able to fly Syracuse, Orlando, if one of the individual carriers could. So it's it's the skepticism is around really are they creating new growth opportunities by coming together, or just creating a larger carrier that's going to be able to create some economies of scale. So there's some real questions about the synergies they propose, and they said they're going to get 500 million in merger synergies from from doing this combo, but um, because you know, they're already growing by double digits, massive order books. Uh, it's uh, the question is really are they going to be able to open the new destinations that they're pro- saying they could? And they listed Eugene, Oregon, Ithaca, New York, and Worcester, Massachusetts. If those destinations work for a ULCC in 2023, why don't they work for a Spirit or a Frontier today? And that was a question. Now I don't know that that this was said not that DOJ is going to kill it because they think they can do this on their own, but it's just that was more. These comments have been more along the lines of the synergies that they can create and questioning whether that's going to be as synergistic to to use the corporate lingo as, as they're promising. Huh. That, that is interesting. Um, will, will, what is the benefit then to the consumer, Ned? I mean, if we, we think of it that from that lens, through that lens, um, will smaller communities get more air service? Is that what they're saying? The, the two so airlines? The airlines are presenting, but it's like, like I said, there's just questions like, how much do you get more benefit? Yeah, you're going to have two airlines that are going to be one airline that's going to be larger, but does that necessarily mean more service that they couldn't do on their own? I mean, yes or no. It, it, that is the question. You know, and another concern uh, that analysts have is costs. You know, already airlines are under cost pressures coming out of the pandemic. You know, labor costs are going up. And uh, Helene Becker at Cowan and Co made a good point that. Spirit and Frontier both pay in about $58 an hour for a starting first officer. For, uh, Southwest is in the $80 and American Delta United are in the 90s. A larger airline is probably going to feel pressure from Alpha's to start paying more hmm. to, to the starting, especially with the, the pilot shortage that we're seeing in the U.S. So, you know, there's some serious questions about the, can the merger achieve everything promising? And yeah, d- we'll did, have to see. Did anyone mention the pilot shortage or the uh, the the ability that the merged airline would have to attract talent? I mean, management didn't talk specifically to the shortage. They talked about, you know, they're they're discussing the agreement with their labor unions. Uh, they're both represented by ALPA on the pilot side and AFA on the flight attendant side. And, you know, they're in discussions there. They didn't talk about hiring, though they did say that they, you know, expect to be a more attractive employment option as a larger airline, having more opportunities for crews. But, you know, there was no real comment on whether they felt pilot shortage was an issue or, or something for, for this merger. Hmm. 
All right, that's uh, that's I like I said, I go away for a day or two and all hell breaks loose. And another piece of news that we got from uh, when I was away was that uh, Allegiance long-term CEO Maury Gallagher, Morris Gallagher, is stepping down. Yes, and he's he's really led uh, the carrier sort of um, blossoming, so to speak. Uh, you know, went from a small you know, carrier, I think, you know, just out west in 2003 when he took the helm as CEO to it's a, a national ULCC and. You know, just behind uh, Frontier, in, well, in terms of, of ULCCs in the U.S., so it's uh, really a success story on his end. So he's he's passing the reins at a good time. Yeah, and and for many years was consistently posted the highest, reported the highest margins in the airline industry worldwide. So he he is a beloved of Wall Street and beloved by his investors. And has really, as you said, led that airline from a small outfit in Las Vegas to a national ULCC, branched and branched into uh, resorts with the Sunseeker that's being built in Florida right now, with a golf resort, um, golf and beach resort, I guess. It's and- interesting, and it's interesting timing because he leaves. Like you said, it's branched out. There are resorts and everything, but the the new CEO. Uh, John Redmond's, I right. believe, president. Mm-hmm. You know, he will take over an allegiant that is. It's not the allegiant that you know Gallagher took over. It's an airline with an order for fifty or Boeing seven thirty seven Maxes. So they're going to have a diverse fleet in a few short years, and then they're also pursuing uh, that joint venture with Viva Aerobus, right. which is something you don't see of typically of ULCC. So you know, it's going to be interesting to watch. Are they going to be able to maintain those high margins and be the you know? Uh, beloved by Wall Street as they diversify and become more complex with two fleet types, joint ventures internationally, things like that. Well, they've always had a kind of complicated fleet. I remember they, they but uh, the difference was that they went from flying these older aircraft that were being retired by the main, the major carriers and have st- and started buying new Airbuses and now new Boeing. So the, their fleet's always been a little bit of a hodgepodge, but the question is, as you mentioned, is they are becoming sort of, they're growing up as an airline. They're going from sort of their, you know, the travel company that happens to run an airline, which is how they sort of presented themselves back in the sort of mid to early um, aughts and, and mid-teens um, to an something that resembles a larger network carrier. Absolutely. It's going to be really interesting. Um, you know, but I like to, I like to point out, as you mentioned, their hodgepodge fleet, you know, before when they were flying old used aircraft there, I remember they would always say, you know, we have such low capital costs. We don't need to fly these planes on Tuesdays and, you know, yeah. at a loss, like we'll just leave them on the ground and we won't be, but as they get new 737 maxes, can they afford to leave these new multi-million dollar jets parked on Tuesdays like they have? So, that's a know, that, very that's good a question. question. Yeah, will yeah. will their network evolve to have more daily flights versus you know some of their routes were offered once a week or yeah. twice a week? Will they will that, will that be possible? Will the utilization co- you know the costs of not utilizing the aircraft rise beyond a manageable level? I don't know Absolutely. the answer to that question. That's why I don't run an airline. <laughs> well, it's going to be, you know, it's a big job for John Redmond to sit in and we uh, we bid Maurice Gallagher adieu and congratulations for a, a you know, successful 20 years at the helm of one of <laughs> one of the more successful airlines in the U.S. And a long airline industry career. And, you know, he probably was 
I, I think he was the longest serving uh, airline CEO that's currently around, second, um, seconded only by uh, Gary Kelly, who stepped down. Um, you could argue Parker has served right longer, and multiple airlines, multiple, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. So at the single yes, company, yes, yes. I mean, you could also make the argument that Parker really has worked at the same company the whole time. But in terms of like working at a single company, I think it goes Gallagher and then Kelly. So um, we bid him, we bid him the best of luck. So now let's squeeze in a quick break here. And we're back. So Ned, now let's let's cross the Pacific and go to India. Indigo, which is India's largest carrier, reported its results last week. That's right. They did, you know, and they had a, a fairly good period. They posted a, a profit in the fourth quarter uh, or the, the December quarter for them of uh, $17.4 million. You know, India's demand is coming back uh, strong at the end of the year, though, it's been a, a very volatile year, as they put it, with different various lockdowns around different uh, the different variants. But uh, yeah, their CEO Ronjoy uh, Dudo is very optimistic for for where they're going. You know, he called it a volatile environment, but traffic is recovering, and and they're optimistic for the future. Yeah, well, I mean, it, which is it's surprising they eked out a profit because if you remember around this time last year, India was hit hard by the Delta variant. Um, vaccinations were lagging. Um, the Delta variant really ravaged the country um, in ways that no one predicted. Um, so that, you know, it's a large, it's a pretty enormous domestic market. So that it recovered af- despite Delta is really kind of remarkable. Absolutely. And you, one thing that, that Duda highlighted is while domestic's coming back, you know, they're seeing significant opportunity on the international side. And this is interesting for Indigo because, of course, they are very, they have very little international exposure. You know, they only fly narrow-body jets, so they're limited to where they can go. But he said, you know, yields on the international routes they are flying, and those are limited by where borders are open, have, are better than they were pre-pandemic because of the capacity limitations. Now, he said those yields will fall back to probably where they were as more flights are allowed. But... He really sees opportunity for the airline to grow internationally coming out of this. You know, they've got you know uh, lots of A320 Neo jets on order, and you know he's they're they're doing they plan to do that. They plan to add markets and add code shares. They touted a Air France KLM code share they signed in the fourth quarter. They signed one with American in uh, the, the the September quarter. So you know, it's Indigo is is really it's a dynamic uh, dynamic airline. I want to say little airline, but it's not so little. So. Right. <laughs> Well, but it does have some new old competition on the block, right? I mean, uh, Air India recently was acquired by the Tata Group, which which launched the airline back in 1932, but it was nationalized in the late 40s, early 50s, I believe. Um, And Tata Group acquired this kind of beleaguered state-owned carrier and is... I mean, I never bet against the Tata Group. Whatever industry they seem to, they put their money in, they do well. So, uh, did, well, Mr. Duda, Mr. Yeah, Duda did had Tata some, have anything to say about that. He, Mr. Duda, did have something to say about that. He he called the uh, Tata Air India deal noise huh. in the market, and he was unconcerned. Uh, referring to the Tata Air India deal as well as the launch of Akasa, which is the new startup uh, led by former Jet Airways CEO. So. Uh, he uh, was very um, 
unconcerned. It's just noise. The, right. Those Tatas taking over India. But you were telling me that whatever the Tatas touch, it becomes, becomes gold. Can you, I mean, it's, uh, Madhu, you, you know them better than I do. Well, I mean, they, they're, it's a huge conglomerate that has invested in everything from steel to, um, probably most familiar to Western uh, listeners is uh, the Jaguar Land Rover Group, which acquired from Ford in, I want to say like almost 10 years ago, and has completely revitalized. I mean, so this, this again, were two ailing companies that Ford had sort of not met, you know, not lived up to their brand promise and now are roaring back. So, so, uh, you know, that's just one analog, but Tata controls everything. And like I said, from steel to shipping to mobile telephony. I mean, it's, it's all over the place and it's and now airlines all over the world. <laughs> well, it not now airlines because leaving aside the fact that it launched air India in the 1930s, it also is a part owner of Vistara with, um, with Singapore airlines. So it already has an international carrier in India. And didn't they have a stake in air Asia India as well? Or not, am I? I am no, not I'm, sure about that. Because I thought I read that they're they're looking at merging Air India Express and Air Asia India, but I could be wrong on that. That I, readers, please fill us in. What else, what other airline stakes do the Tata Group have? <laughs> yeah, you can reach <laughs> Ned at er at skiff com. You can reach me at mu at skiff com. Let us know if we've we've got that right. But absolutely. Anything so yeah, else? Oh, well, sorry. I was gonna say it was fascinating listening to listening to Indigo talk about uh, you know the market and how dynamic it is. Uh, you know they're renewing their fleet. They plan to have all of their A three twenty CO aircraft gone by the end of this year, as they take you know like I said hundreds of new Neo jets and and then they're also expanding to smaller destinations in India with ATRs. They're you know they're due to take more ATR turboprops this year, and and they're weighing whether they want to expand or replace uh, other aircraft with those. As you know, Mister um, Judah said that he's been uh, surprised by the strength of some of the smaller Indian markets. Actually, so it was it's it was a yeah, they're a dynamic airline and they're growing, and it's it's an airline we don't you know see much about here in in the U.S. because they just there's no presence, but they really are a dynamic growing powerhouse. Well, this is, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see how this all plays out because India has always been the next big thing in aviation. I mean, for a variety of factors, it's a huge, enormous population, um, enormous urbanized population as well, emerging middle class with lots of discretionary income. And it's geograph geographically pretty huge. I mean, it's about the size of Western Europe. So there's, um, you know, the, there's always been potential. The ground transportation, road transportation is I could bend your ear about bus bus trips in India, and I won't. That's a subject for another podcast. But anyway. oh, oh, my dear, oh, my dear, my my trip, my one, my well, one of my trips to India, I will never forget how everyone told me about the nice new highway that had been built <laughs> that I was going, and then I'm on in a car going down it, and it just stops, yeah. and there was like a hundred foot section of gravel, and I was like. Finish anyway, and yes. I mean, we, it, <laughs> and the railways are enormous, uh, but slow, very, very slow. Yeah. And um, there, there's always been talk about how India will just be like aviation will take off, but we've seen several carriers, Kingfisher. Um, uh, well, I, I mean, believe, SpiceJet is still struggling. SpiceJet uh, Jet Airways Jet is gone, right? Kingfisher's former CEO is on the lamb, so it's. Uh, it's really, it's just never quite made it. And Air India has been struggling for, some might say, decades. So 
It, it's interesting to see. I'll, I'm curious to see how this revitalized Air India and Indian Airlines and Indigo dynamic plays out. How Vistara fits into it. Whether the country will actually live up to its promise in terms well, of how Acasa fits into it. Acasa, I mean, yeah. so much. Absolutely, there's so much. But it's certainly about. a large enough country for two, if not three, dominant airline players. I, I would, you know, I would say, given the population size, everything. I look to China with three dominant players. So. We shall see. I know infrastructure was always like we just talked about roads and rails, but airport infrastructure is also a problem. Like airports are are you know constrained, and and they're not building airports the way China is. So it's a open question. But you know, I I do not ex- uh, profess to know the ins and outs of the Indian market. I so. will tell you this though. I mean, the airports are much better than they were when I was a kid. I mean, Bombay, the <laughs> Bombay's airport was truly frightening when i was a kid and now is quite glorious but uh but there are there are issues with constraints in air traffic control of course and um and the ability of the airports to handle the traffic that may or may not come so all Absolutely. all all things to watch out for as as india and the rest of the world emerges from the pandemic so ned let's leave it there that sounds good. Madhu, always a pleasure. Uh, listeners, as we say, you can reach Madhu at mu at skiff.com. You can reach myself at er at skiff.com. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Goodbye. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. Should you have comments or questions, drop editor Madhu Unikrishnan a note at mu at skiff.com. Of course, Check out airlineweekly.com for a new issue every Monday and updates on the latest airline news throughout the week.